From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. This episode covers the 1987 murders of a mother and her two daughters. This crime angered and terrified Anchorage residents, and they wondered who could commit such a brutal act, and would he strike again? Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I am broadcasting from the middle of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. In my last episode, I profiled serial killer Robert Hansen. Three years after Hansen was sentenced, someone brutally murdered Nancy Newman and her two young daughters in their home in Anchorage. While discussing Hansen's reign of terror, I pointed out how the sloppy police work and shoddy judicial decisions during Hansen's earlier crimes allowed a monster to remain free to hunt women. The investigation of the Newman family murders three years later, however, is a story about a police force and a crime lab working together in perfect harmony. I am amazed by how far the Anchorage Police Force and the State Crime Lab progressed in only three years. People moved to Alaska for a variety of reasons, including adventure, the chance to make good money, life in the wilderness, and to escape the problems in their lives. Alaska is not a good refuge for people with serious issues, though. Winters are harsh, and the endless winter nights can be depressing. If a person has psychological problems to begin with, they are likely to get worse in Alaska. Kirby Anthony was so flawed before he moved to Alaska It's difficult to say whether his condition worsened once he lived here for a while. But from his actions, we can guess it did. Nancy Newman and her sister, Cheryl Chapman, were waitresses at Gwynny's, a popular Anchorage restaurant still in business today. Nancy's husband, John, worked as a heavy equipment operator for Mark Air until he was seriously injured in a forklift accident. Workman's compensation paid to have him retrained in California as a locksmith, and he was in California at his training in March 1987. Meanwhile, Nancy and her two daughters, Melissa, age 8, and Angie, age 3, stayed in Anchorage, where Nancy worked as a tax accountant, in addition to her job at Gwenny's. At 6 p.m. on Friday, March 13, 1987, Nancy joined her sister Cheryl and Cheryl's husband Paul Chapman for dinner at Gwenny's. Meanwhile, Cheryl's daughter took Nancy's children swimming. After dinner, Nancy left her car at Gwenny's and rode with the Chapmans to their house, where they sat and talked for a while. Later, they drove to Nancy's apartment and sat around her kitchen table, smoking and drinking coffee. 
Melissa and Angie returned home at 9 p.m. and went to bed, and the Chapmans departed a while later. Nancy left her car at Gwynny's that night and told the Chapmans she would get a ride to the restaurant the following day to retrieve it. Her next shift at Gwynny's was not until 6 a.m. Sunday. At 8 a.m. on Sunday, a ringing telephone startled the Chapmans awake. Nancy's boss at Gwynny's apologized for calling so early, but said Nancy was two hours late for her shift, and her car was still parked at the restaurant. It hadn't been moved since Friday night. Her boss was concerned because Nancy was never late for work. Cheryl immediately knew something was wrong, and she and Paul hurried over to the Newman's apartment. Cheryl had keys to her sister's apartment, so they let themselves in, and Cheryl, who was a nervous wreck, sat at the kitchen table while Paul searched the home. Paul opened the door to Melissa's room, where he found the little girl's body on the floor. She was on her back with her right arm under her back and her left arm out to the side. Both legs were bent at the knees and spread wide. Her nightgown had been pulled up above her waist. In the second room, Paul found Nancy dead on the bed with a pillowcase around her neck and her nightshirt pulled above her breasts. The horror got worse when he opened the third door and found three-year-old Angie Newman covered in blood. Both her left carotid artery and her jugular vein had been severed. Paul fought to remain calm as he returned to the kitchen and told his wife, Don't go down the hall. They're all dead. Cheryl can be heard screaming in the background of the 911 tape when Paul called to report the crime. Detective Sergeant Mike Grimes, head of the Homicide Response Team of the Anchorage Police Department, led the investigation into the Newman murders. He assigned two groups of detectives to the case. One group was responsible for gathering evidence from the crime scene, while the other group concentrated on leads and suspects. It was one of the most intensive murder investigations in the history of the state. The forensic team spent two weeks combing the apartment for blood, hair, and fluid samples, as well as for fingerprints. They even searched for footprints in the carpet. According to Paul Chapman, Nancy borrowed their vacuum cleaner on Friday, March 13th, and cleaned her apartment. The freshly cleaned apartment allowed detectives to vacuum again and gather recently shed hair and fiber. Everything was meticulously collected, labeled, and shipped either to the state crime lab or to the FBI lab. Detectives noticed two cereal bowls in the kitchen sink, a cup of coffee on the kitchen table, and a few cigarette butts in the ashtray. Cheryl Chapman told police the girls liked to get up early on Saturday morning and watch cartoons and eat cereal, while Nancy drank coffee and smoked. This led authorities to believe the murders took place sometime Saturday morning. A large, empty cookie jar sat in the middle of the kitchen table, and John Newman told police Nancy kept her tip money in the jar, the coins packaged in rolls. Also missing from the apartment were Nancy's purse and jewelry, John's keys, checkbook, 
a wallet, and an expensive 35-millimeter camera. Despite the missing items, the apartment looked tidy. It had not been ransacked. It was as if the perpetrator knew exactly where to find the things he took, and he disturbed nothing else. The murderer had struck Nancy in the face several times with a blunt object and then strangled her to death. Police found blood and a small amount of fecal matter on her sheets and green wool gloves near her body. They discovered blood on the underneath side of the bathroom light switch and a damp washcloth wadded up in the sink. Investigators recovered three pubic hairs on Melissa's bed and 13 more pubic hairs on or near her body. They found one pubic hair on Angie and collected two more from floor sweepings. They also found an additional hair on the wash rag in the bathroom sink. All three victims had been sexually assaulted, and Sergeant Grimes felt certain the perpetrator not only knew the victims but had enjoyed himself while committing these atrocities. After he murdered Nancy and her daughters, he splayed their bodies as if displaying his handiwork. Grimes believed the killer was a sexual psychopath, and he consulted the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. FBI analysts told him the murders were probably committed by someone close to the family and someone who spent enough time at their apartment that his presence in the neighborhood early in the morning did not arouse the suspicions of neighbors. The profile also stated the killer could likely keep himself under control when things were going well, but he fantasized about rape and murder and probably had assaulted other young girls. They noted that this type of individual could commit a brutal murder and then act normal an hour later. Police immediately suspected John Newman's nephew, 23-year-old Kirby Anthony. Anthony and his girlfriend moved to Anchorage from Twin Falls, Idaho in 1985, when authorities in Idaho accused him of raping and brutally beating a 12-year-old girl at a campground near Twin Falls. Prosecutors there never filed charges against Anthony because the young girl was the only witness to the crime, and she had been beaten so badly she was brain damaged and couldn't identify her attacker. Anthony denied raping and beating the girl, but a few years earlier, in 1982, he did confess to robbing an elderly, wheelchair-bound woman in her house. Before he left the house, he tied her up and sprayed mace in her face. When he later withdrew his confession for robbing and assaulting the woman, prosecutors dismissed the case against him. Anthony was also arrested numerous times for burglary. When his problems escalated in Idaho, Anthony fled to Anchorage, where his Uncle John and Aunt Nancy Newman lived. He and his girlfriend stayed with the Newmans for a month in 1986 before taking jobs on a fishing boat in Dutch Harbor, Alaska. On board the Arctic Enterprise, Anthony's girlfriend broke up with him when she grew tired of his abusive behavior, and a short while later, Anthony was fired. Two months after leaving Anchorage to work on the Arctic Enterprise, Kirby Anthony returned to Anchorage and took a taxi to Nancy Newman's apartment. By this time, John was in California training as a locksmith. 
Kirby asked Nancy if he could stay at her apartment for a while, and she reluctantly agreed. His volatile temper and drug use concerned her, and she didn't like having him around the girls. John was not happy when he heard Kirby was living in their apartment, and he told Nancy to kick him out. Nancy asked Anthony to leave, and while Anthony complied, he reportedly was furious with his aunt. According to Anthony, he spent the night of March 13th drinking alcohol and using cocaine at a dice-playing party across the street from where he lived. He stayed up all night and returned to his apartment the following morning when his roommate was getting ready for work. The roommate said Anthony left again around 8.45. Anthony said he then went to the home of his friend Kirk Mullins and arrived there around 9 a.m. Mullins, though, said Anthony didn't arrive at his home until between 10 and 11 a.m. But Mullins did say that when Anthony arrived, he acted normal, as if nothing were wrong. If Kirby Anthony was the murderer, police wondered how he could savagely rape and murder three members of his family and then carry on a casual conversation an hour later. Detectives asked Anthony for the clothes he had been wearing Friday night and Saturday morning, and then they searched his apartment, where they found John Newman's camera. Anthony claimed Nancy let him borrow the camera. The clothes they collected were fairly clean, but analysts found a drop of blood on his shoe and discovered a spot of feces on his shirt. Remember, this was back before the era of DNA analysis. The investigators determined the blood was human, but the sample yielded no other information. While the crime lab continued to run tests on the evidence, the Anchorage Police Task Force played mind games with Anthony. They sporadically tailed him, making sure he saw the tail, and two of the detectives talked to him frequently, playing good cop, bad cop with him. By April 15th, Anthony felt the pressure, and he climbed in his truck and fled for the Canadian border, asking his roommate not to tell the police where he'd gone. His roommate immediately called the Anchorage police, and authorities stopped Anthony at the Canadian border. Police brought Anthony back to Anchorage and arrested him for the murders of Nancy, Melissa, and Angie Newman. Detectives were certain they had the killer in custody, but they had no witnesses and no direct pieces of evidence to tie Anthony to the crimes. No murder weapon was found, nor were detectives lucky enough to find Anthony's bloody fingerprints in the apartment. The forensic evidence and its analysis would be key to Anthony's conviction, but Anthony had lived with the Newmans for several weeks, so there was an innocent explanation why his fingerprints were all over their apartment. However, there was not a good reason why his prints were found on the empty cookie jar, where Nancy had stashed her tip money. After the murders, witnesses saw Anthony use rolls of coins to pay for things. Pubic hairs removed from the victim's bodies and from the damp washcloth left in the bathroom sink looked identical to ones collected from Kirby Anthony, but the hairs could not be matched definitively to one person. More damning were the lice egg casings clinging to some of the pubic hairs collected from the bodies, as well as to the pubic hair collected from the rag in the sink. At the time of the murders, Anthony had pubic lice. 
The washcloth also had green wool fibers on it, matching the gloves found near Nancy Newman's body. And the gloves were full of hair pulled from Nancy Newman's head. It appeared as though the perpetrator attacked Nancy while wearing the green gloves. He then removed the gloves and went into the bathroom to clean himself with the washcloth, leaving behind the wool fibers and a pubic hair covered with lice egg casings. Detectives were also certain Anthony got feces on his shirt from the spot on Nancy Newman's bed. Prosecutors struggled with the task of explaining to a jury how anyone could brutally murder three people and then act perfectly normal an hour later. FBI agent John Douglas with the Behavioral Science Unit explained that the FBI categorizes acts such as those perpetrated against the Newman family as sex power killings. These premeditated acts are committed by a sane individual with a character disorder. While the perpetrator knows the difference between right and wrong, he doesn't care. He lacks a conscience. If he feels no remorse, there is no reason for him to act guilty after committing a brutal act. Once all the evidence was presented, the jury deliberated for two days before returning a verdict of guilty on all counts. Kirby Anthony's sentence was so long, he would not even be eligible for parole for 120 years. When pronouncing his sentence, the judge stated Kirby Anthony was the most dangerous offender ever to enter his courtroom. The Newman murders understandably outraged the city of Anchorage, and Kirby Anthony received numerous death threats. The crime even sparked a movement to reinstate the death penalty in Alaska, but the movement never gained traction. This case is an excellent example of how forensic evidence can be used to capture and convict a murderer. Thanks to the many hours crime scene investigators spent combing through the Newman apartment collecting evidence, prosecutors were able to build a strong circumstantial case and put Kirby Anthony behind bars where he belonged. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts so other listeners can find me. I've written three Alaska wilderness novels, and my fourth novel will be released soon. Check the show notes to learn more about my novels. I also write a newsletter about murder and mystery in Alaska. If you would like to receive my newsletter, check the link in the show notes to sign up for it. I write one newsletter a month, and it will include the links to my podcast for the month. Also, please check the show notes for my social media links, and I invite you to connect with me. Soon I hope to have a Facebook page dedicated to my podcast. Thank you again, and I will see you next time with Murder and Mystery from the Last Frontier. Frontier.